Welcome back to another episode of Perspectives by Women in Securities Finance. My name is Carmela Haswell. I'm a reporter for Securities Finance Times, and today I'll be a host for a part two of a two-part mini-series where we are continuing the conversation had by two SFT features titled Moving the Needle and Fixing the Broken Rung. These articles focus on the representation of women in the securities, finance and lending sector and the barriers that they face in a male-dominated industry. Today, I'm joined by Jacqueline Waller, Senior Vice President and Head of Client Relationship Management for EMEA at ESEC Lending, Smyrna Stoichkova, State Street's Head of Global Markets and State Street Digital for Europe, and Ina Budraja, EMEA Head of Product and Strategy, Securities Finance and Markets ESG at BNY Mellon, and of course, Women in Securities Finance's very own London Chapter Lead. Thank you all for joining me. Let's jump straight in. Representation was a huge theme of these features. Jackie, how much does representation influence the jobs we take and the industries that women enter into? I think it does definitely have an impact on women and particularly in the different types of roles maybe that they may want to apply for or get into. So, for example, if you are interested in the front office role or a trading type role, having a lack of women represented in that workplace definitely, I think, can be kind of a turnoff for many women who might think that they can't really flourish in that type of environment I mean for me I kind of started my career in the front office role and personally having a lack of women in there didn't really stop me from applying for those roles or actually trying to go for those roles but I do know that I really benefited very early in my career from having a senior female mentor who just happened to be the only other trading person who was there and that was really important for me she was really a real key mentor for me and I learned a lot from her but I do think it definitely can have an impact for some women. One thing I would say, though, is not just about representation for women early on in their career. Certainly for me, one of the things I really learned was, although, like I said, it didn't hold me back from entering the industry, what I kind of realised as I went through my career is that this networking part, which is the part that women in securities finance is really changing for me, and certainly I think a lot of other women around the globe are feeling the same, is that, At some point in your career, you're going to need to have a network to make that next step or to talk to somebody on how you can change that. And certainly for me, I realized a little bit later in my career that that was really lacking for me. And when I actually joined the industry, obviously, women in securities finance wasn't about at the time either. So I'm really passionate, I suppose, about ensuring women very much early on in their career. They recognize how important networking is but also equally important for women who may have got stuck in their career or now actually want to change a career, how important it is. That kind of networking thing just is not just something that is really important early on. It's, I think, throughout your entire career, I couldn't be more happy that Women in Securities Finance has came about because I think it has been a real game changer and will continue to be for women in the industry. Absolutely. And Simona, what is your take on how representation can influence a person entering an industry? I couldn't agree more with Jackie. I think our mind tends to work in patterns and finding commonalities, and these do tend to influence our decisions. So if we enter an industry where or job where there are far less women than in others, of course, you ask yourself questions. I personally started in audit, and it was actually fairly, uh, certainly on the entry level, it was actually fairly, fairly equal on our intake. And then as you looked further up, women got less and less and less. But that wasn't really obvious to me initially because I kind of felt 
well in my group and we were kind of, as I said, fairly equal. When I then changed or moved to financial services, right after I qualified as a chartered accountant, the ratio was completely different. So the only woman in my entire team was me. So the only associate. And my manager was female, but generally, if I looked on the trading floor around, there were very, very few women. And though that didn't stop me from progressing within financial services, same as Jackie said, it did make me think as to why that is. It's probably the first time I noticed it, though having already been three to four years into my career. And I fully, fully agree with Jackie on a networking point. When I also speak to younger females or graduates, I always stress the networking point because I also realized later in my career the importance of it. And it does help. It absolutely helps you grow, helps you reflect, helps you see similarities, helps you find role models. So hugely, hugely important networking. What are your thoughts on this? It's great to hear from both Simona and Jackie. I absolutely agree with them. I think the representation does matter, absolutely. Personally, for me, it did matter. And it's representation of diversity, right? So it's gender, but it's also other diversity criteria that really mattered to me. And I started my career in law, actually, in a law firm many, many years ago, where, you know, DNI wasn't really a topic that was discussed. So things have really changed. But there was no representation of women making it through. And I think that's where representation matters, right? It's not just are there women there, but how are they doing in their careers? Are they succeeding? How many people are making it through to progress levels? And are they happy, actually? Do they seem to be enjoying their careers and able to identify as, you know, culturally as well? And that was a big factor for me. So I didn't at the time see that representation in in a law firm, actually. And the law firms have changed tremendously and they, they really have come a long way. So that looks very different today. But in those days, from a personal perspective, I can tell you, I saw people, you know, females being sent home because they appeared at work in a trouser suit. So things really moved on. But, you know, and I saw it being slightly different in finance at that time. And I do stress that all firms have changed and there are many, many support mechanisms now which have led to what I think is a great equality in the law firms but finance was definitely more diverse at the time in terms of culture, in terms of gender. And I think that was definitely a reason for me to move into this industry at the time. Having said that, you know, think things are, there is a lot of work to be done. Things are changing. And I think one of the key factors now is around transparency, right? It's important that firms are transparent in how they're approaching DNI and what intentional actions they're taking to to really make it work in practice. So it's not just about attracting women or other diverse talent candidates. It's also about how do they retain them? How do they progress them? You know, what levels are they reaching? So that we can really see what, what's the culture of the firm like from the inside. Thank you. And as you've all mentioned, in the SFT feature series, several people had mentioned feeling like the only person or one of the very few in the room at some point in their careers. Simona, what impact does this have on an individual? Does it give women a push to represent those similar to themselves being one of the few? Or does it present an added pressure to adapt and survive in a male-dominated industry? It's a strange feeling, really, because I also used to ask myself, why am I the only one or one of a few? And is it that women are not good enough or is it that women don't fit the norm and I'm targeting actually a career which most women are not really interested in? And why is it actually like this? And then with time, I realized that diversity is actually not a natural given. So though we're 50-50 male, female population, that doesn't mean that that split also applies in a corporate environment. 
And actually, we need to work on educating others to see the benefits of it. But very importantly, also empowering women to ensure they're confident enough to ask for a seat on the table. And of course, there is unconsciously, but also consciously pressure to fit in, especially in the early part of my career. I used to make a lot of effort to be seen as part of the male groups. And I really wanted everybody to like me, which was totally wrong and put a lot, a lot of pressure on me mentally. And as I became older and more mature, it's probably a better word. And I reflected more on experiences. I realized that this is not the best productive way of my time. And rather than spending time to fit in and pretend I'm someone who I'm not, I should actually spend significant more time in mentoring, sponsoring women in order they believe in themselves and help them to further their careers, because that's effectively what also helped me. I still have role models, I have mentors, I have sponsors, and I'm also part of networks. And, and all of that helps me grow. And I realized that that's the better way for me to spend my time with. You know, what is your take on the impact it has on an individual? So I think we do have to recognize that that concept of being the only one in the room still does exist today to an extent, although we're on a journey, which is a positive one, right? So it is changing, but it's something we still experience. And it's not generally a positive experience. That sort of concept of fish out of water and the imposter syndrome that many of us are familiar with, right? Those are concepts that women really, they do feel and they suffer from. I think it impacts confidence tremendously. And I found it surprising to hear just how many women, and actually not only women, but, you know, how many people do really suffer from what is a debilitating imposter syndrome. So I think it matters that we create a level playing field and it isn't just sort of a one and done concept. You know, you've hired in a, a woman or you've invited a woman to a meeting that sort of tokenism can be very disempowering, even despite some good intentions. But at the same time, you know, we have to recognise that there is a numbers issue, right? We are on a journey to building those numbers and we need the right people in the room, the right voices in the room. So it's more about looking at diversity more broadly, I think, and ensuring that, you know, are the right subject matter experts in the room? Are we hearing all those voices once they're in the room and allowing the adequate uh, level of challenge to group think? And, and essentially that's the benefit of the diversity by including those people. We really have a better conversation. So my view is, yes, being the only one in the room is, it can be uncomfortable it's very much a personal thing, but I think we need to, you know, understand why has that happened in the context of the environment at the time. And Jackie, what are your thoughts on this? I agree a lot with what Ina and Simone just said, clearly. I think even if you are comfortable in a male-dominated environment, I grew up watching male sports. I was the only female on my kind of class at university to graduate in my specific degree. So I've kind of really been used to growing up in those type of environments. So I didn't find at initial thought, oh, this is going to be really daunting. I'm in a male only environment. But there are times when I've definitely felt uncomfortable or slightly awkward because, for instance, the way that men tend to, and it's nothing against men, but this is just naturally that I remember a trader saying to me once, the best way that I feel I make my career progress is either at 2 a.m. in a bar or on a golf course, one of which I neither had access to. And that became a bit of a, you know, that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me that I'm like, okay, there are some differences in here. Even if you are very talented or even if you don't mind working in these environments, there are still invisible or kind of unconscious things that you have to get through. And I think even when you layer on top of that, even more DNI factors, so whether women have to kind of behave in a certain way, they speak in a certain way, have to dress in a certain way, 
in a friend of mine who's a lovely black lady. She's got an amazing hair. She can't wear her hair the way that she wants to wear her hair in the office because she thinks it's not appropriate. Now, the fact that in the 21st century, we are talking about hair for women in the workplace, I just think is ridiculous, but just shows that sometimes, even though there has been huge improvement, we still have a long way to go. But I do think that the mentoring side of it, which I know Simona just mentioned about there, is really important because we know that there are, unfortunately, these are challenges and barriers that women come up against and we can't solve them all overnight. We can't. We know there's improvement, as Ina said, but we can't solve them overnight. So what can we do? How can we work with our network, with our fellow female colleagues, whatever level they are, to try and make those changes? And I do think mentoring can really help for women who have moved up in their career or are in those more senior positions or are in an area of say, a financial firm that you want to get into and you've not been able to make that change. What can you do to kind of help yourself? So yeah, absolutely. The networking, mentoring, they go hand in hand, but mentoring for me is really, really key. And I certainly benefited from it early in my career. Thank you. And as you said, I mean, how do we tackle these barriers? A few of you met already mentioning the unconscious and conscious biases and pressures put upon us. They're arguably one of the main reasons why there is a lack of diverse female representation in the financial space. The need to hire someone who is similar to oneself is a large hurdle to tackle. So, I mean, how do we tackle them? First of all, I think is the recognition that they absolutely exist. Firms have to actually acknowledge they exist and that, you know, when women, these unconscious bias, and we know that not to get defensive over them, they are called unconscious for a reason, but to ensure that we understand that they do exist and then to really enshrine those beliefs or ideals in terms of some of the hiring or talent policies that firms use. But then really importantly for me is to ensure that that tone has really been set from the top so that senior leaders are really truly representing these thoughts. So for instance, if a firm agrees, right, we are hybrid working is here to stay. We're definitely going to stay with that. And women may, for instance, then think, right, I'm going to apply more for a front office role because I didn't think I could do before, but during the pandemic, clearly people can see that you can do those types of roles. And then all of a sudden, everybody in the trading team or everybody who's a senior leader is in the office five days a week. So from that perspective, that doesn't really work. So it doesn't matter how many policies that you have, people are not going to get on board with them unless that tone is really set from the top. So I think that's a really important part that senior leaders have to really set an example. Ina, how do we tackle these issues? First of all, I agree. I think these issues around systemic bias does still exist. And particularly when it comes to advancement, I think we're better at being more proactive about hiring. But then, you know, what do we do with that diverse talent once it comes through the door? And it comes down to inclusion, right? We can hire diverse talent, but we can't see the benefits of that diversity unless we really tackle inclusion. And that means, in my mind, it means breaking down biases and those historical stereotypes of fit and success, you know, what looks good rethinking that and we need to take an intentional approach in our organizations to do that and that you know as Jackie said it comes from the top and it has to permeate through the entire organization at every level so that we're constantly sort of challenging managers holding them to account in a positive way but really to sense check the outcomes right and ensure that diverse talent's not being overlooked for advancement opportunities that there is that support and I think it requires active mentoring and sponsorship to really bring success into this area because it isn't going to happen by itself and we've seen that so we need to really step into it take an active approach and champion 
all talent, but be very aware that diverse talent needs that support to succeed. And it is to create the level playing field. It's not to show favoritism to one particular group, but it's to create the level playing field, which is better for everybody at the end of the day. And it's better for our firms from a risk perspective. And we have to recognise that all talent won't show up in the same way. You know, the established group may look one way. Maybe that you bring in people that have different styles, different accents, a softer spoken voice, maybe less direct, less assertive. But we have to take the time to listen and make the most of that talent. So I can't emphasize enough, I think, how much inclusion is really important to this debate. And that is going to require more time and effort. But, you know, ultimately will lead to better decision making and better economic outcomes. Absolutely. Simona, Jackie and Ina have made some incredible points. What can you add to this? Yeah, I fully agree with the points from Jackie and Ina. I think setting it from the top is an absolute prerequisite because otherwise no processes or policies work. And Ina mentioned actually quite an interesting point, which which I was also going to go into it. On the hiring side, a lot of firms tend to have a good process. So they tend to work with agencies which give them a diverse slate of candidates. They tend to look at their job specs and ensure it's, it's done properly. They tend to have panel interviews with diverse representation. And all of that we do at State Street as well. And all of that works. But what you find is then when you get the diverse intake, then after two years, several of the women will disappear. Yeah. And then you have to ask yourself, what are we doing wrong in this organization? Why is it that women initially feel included and feel like our company and are keen to enter? But then after two years, they lose that feeling. And it's exactly what Ina said. It's about making sure that we help women and we help people who are actually different from what we all perceive as the norm we're actually inclusive to them. And we have sponsorship programs. We look at succession management. We have development plans with them. And we really make sure that we don't have one way of evaluating candidates or one way which looks at career progression, but that we look at different paths of career progression as well. Because as Ina said, some of us are slower, some of us are a bit more shy, some of us don't say much in the meetings. And it's up to us actually in the management layers, be that middle management, be that senior or executive management, to really ensure that these women are heard and actually included and also feel valued in how we manage our people. And that's very, very key. And I think a lot of organizations do that, unfortunately, wrong or place less emphasis on it. But I think it's equally important as the hiring piece. Thank you. Thank you. So as important as it is to discuss topics such as representation for women in the industry, why is it important to have this representation? In which ways can a more diverse team impact a firm and a sector as a whole? I think a very high level, there's numerous studies around the globe, depending on what kind of industry you're involved in. But, you know, if we just look at financial services per se, having a non-diverse workforce definitely has, I would say, a negative impact on the organisation. Whether that means in terms of productivity, whether that means in terms of managing risk, we've all heard the old adage of Lehman Brothers versus Lehman Sisters and so forth. But also, I just think for better morale and better employee engagement. And I think that's for firms which have a higher representation of women, both generally, but also have that higher representation of women at more leadership levels. So I think when you kind of break it down into the impact that can have from both an economic perspective, as well as just thinking about it more broadly across an organization in terms of not only retaining but also attracting future talent I don't think you can really argue with the kind of studies and empirical evidence but that's been discussed so I don't really know whether anybody can add anything further to that other than 
why aren't we all doing it? I sit there and I think it's a no brainer. Why aren't we doing this? But clearly we still have a long way to go. But it's just when you see the facts, they're so compelling. It does make me scratch my head. I agree with you, Jackie. I mean, I think at the very basic, right, in this industry, it is proven that there is a business case for diversity. I was looking at a study by Pipeline Equity, which, I mean, their findings show that for every 10% increase in intersectional gender diversity, there's a 1% to 2% revenue increase. I mean, there are many studies which show increased economic benefit comes from diversity. But there's also the evidence that shows that diversity prevents groupthink and it leads to more robust risk management. And we've seen the regulators, certainly in the UK, really focus on this recently. The Bank of England, the FCA, they prioritised DNI, particularly over the last two years, also the US regulators actually, emphasising the need for firms to take a very active approach to DNI and balance their organizations. It's a regulatory expectation. And they've also stressed that they will use their supervisory powers if firms don't do it, right? So it is important. They recognize that it leads to more resilient organizations, you know, better risk management, and it's important for society. And that's a point that's really being made by the regulators as well. We need to represent society. And as an example, I mean, the Bank of England's taken a very intentional approach over the last year. They introduced a meeting varied people program. And that's really to, to signal, I think, to the market also that we need to represent people that ultimately we are serving as an industry, right? That is important. And again, you know, from a talent attraction perspective, it's really important that we are relevant to the new generation and the workforce that we want to attract. And I think there's an expectation in that new generation that they can work somewhere, they can be their authentic selves and bring their best to the table, rather than being expected to fit into old images of what financial services looked like. So I think it is important that we recognise we won't attract the right talent to this industry and we'll lose it to other industries like tech unless we adapt and I was just going to say actually sorry Simona before I know that you're probably going to jump in just because of something you just said then Ina where I think regulators are also looking at this but as you just discussed where I think firms could also suffer economically is from the fact that this is also reaching beneficial owners so when you're getting RFPs now for business Firms are absolutely looking to understand, as in the asset managers or beneficial owners, are really looking to understand the composition of firms and and really looking into the granularity. So not just understanding, okay, well, what's your balance between female and male representation in your firm? They also want to understand, well, what women are in leadership positions and in positions that really make a big difference, like, you know, CFO or COO or CIO. We want to really understand that at a much more granular level. So I think if firms don't embrace some of these policies and they can't demonstrate how they're doing this, it's this tangible thing, right? Being able to really demonstrate how they're doing it, then it's also going to impact them for future business. I mean, I truly think that. Just on that point, I think, you know, this is part of the ESG, right? And there's a big focus on ESG, as we know. And impacts your ESG scorecard ultimately and the way that your clients will look at you. Yeah, and that again has a huge economical impact. So I think the more we unpack this, the more we come to this right conclusion, it has a huge economical impact. And any organization has a duty to their shareholders and to their clients to create value for them and to service them in the best possible way and, and also continue to innovate for them so that 
the clients or the shareholders can conquer any market conditions. So it's not really an option, diversity. It's actually a logical must and a logical consequence of everything that it entails. Now, we've touched upon this throughout the podcast so far, but where do we go from here? As participants in this industry, how can each of you push the agenda forward through actions and solutions? So for me, it's about setting the right example and being a role model. So I really think we all have a duty to be that. I personally, I mentor two females who have their own startup. So it's completely independent of State Street. What they do is they've created a book for young children. I mean, in Germany, we have a word for it, women book. I don't know what's the English word for it, but it's basically a picture book and targets kind of three to six-year-olds. And when you look at these sort of books, for example, in Germany, you will find, and I'm sure actually in the Western world it's the same, you find it's always white children in there. It's a lot of times children with, or it's always children with no disabilities, with kind of the standard parent model, and you find no diversity whatsoever in those books. And unfortunately, the mindset starts being influenced as early as childhood. So if we start already like that, how can we expect then our next generation, the new generations to grow up with a diverse mindset? So these two have created this book and have launched their own publishing house. And it's really interesting, has got nothing to do with financial services, but I mentor these two. And for me, it's really enriching to be with them on their journey. Additionally to that, I also mentor people via State Street program. So that's internally and externally. And I also try as much as possible to answer LinkedIn requests. So so I, I don't know if you guys have the same, but I receive a lot of questions on LinkedIn. Very simple questions sometimes, like one sentence or two sentences about a certain situation in the career. And then I get asked, how would you approach it or what would you do? And I receive several of those, so I don't manage to answer all of them, but I do try, I do try to do as, as good as I can. So I personally, I'm committed to diverse teams and I actively work on that when hiring. And I also actively work on it when I go through succession management and key talent. So for me, really, it's about commitment to diversity because we are all limited on time. And as such, it's also about prioritization of diversity. And it's important to be highly committed and to see diversity as a key priority. Thank you. Jackie, Ina, what can you add? A lot of what Simona just talked about then, I really completely feel the same. I think for me, one of the things that I tend to think about a little bit with people who have I've previously mentored is that obviously we are on a journey of change and we know that through all the things that we've just talked about on this podcast in terms of different policies and how do we stop unconscious bias and everything else that firms can do to encourage women to step forward for these roles but also to ensure that those roles are available for women I think the thing again where I would I suppose place a large amount of emphasis on is ensuring that women just feel empowered to embrace these opportunities because we know that there might not be as opportunities as many as say for men but when they do come along we want to make sure that women feel like they can actually absolutely take them on board and I think for me the biggest aspect of some of the mentoring program that I did with younger women although it really as I said could equally apply to women who are further on in their career is to really think about what they can do to feel empowered to jump out of their comfort zone. I definitely agree with what's been said and I think the point on role models is really important. There's some really great research by the charity Inspiring Girls which shows that girls tend to form a firm view on what is accessible to them by the age of seven. So it's really young and it's really important that we can showcase to you know, women growing up that there is a whole host of career opportunities that are available to them that may not traditionally be seen as being accessible. And then I think, you know, the points on mentorship and sponsorship are very important. 
it is taking women through that entire career journey and checking in with them along the way and providing support. And I think, you know, it does take a village, right? You do need a support system. Women do face particular challenges along the way, which we have to recognise. And um, I think networking is a really key one, you know, and, and women are now at the forefront of establishing networking groups. And that's really opening the dialogue and supporting others, women helping other women, mentoring them, sponsoring them. I mean, that's why we established the Women in Securities Finance Group. It's The mission is to help advance women in the securities finance industry and empower them to grow professionally through building their network and support system, helping to lift and help them succeed. And it's been a great example of women coming together, you know, real engagement from members, growing over the last five years to a network of almost a thousand members, which includes women and male allies. And I think male allies have a really important part to play also in this dialogue and in making it work for women as they grow in the industry. I think the final thing I would say, though, is also to mention and really recognise the fact that there are some hurdles along the career journey for women which are specific to women and they impact all women right at some stage of their lives so it's it's vital that we also address that female health issues play a part they can be extremely disempowering and we need to have open conversations within firms on the topic we need to recognise those challenges and provide the support and empower women to succeed through those normal phases of life And, you know, they happen at various points in life. And if we don't tackle it as firms, then, you know, it remains a taboo subject. We keep asking ourselves, why is there a broken ring? Why do women leave at certain points in their career? When we see there's in excess of 50% of university students are females currently in this country, right? I think in the States, it's also been shown that there are over 50% female MBA students coming out of business schools. But where do they go? Where do they fall away? Why aren't they making it through to senior levels in organisations? So we need to talk about what to do to support women at those critical stages in their careers. Thank you so much. This conversation has been very enlightening and it's a very important conversation to keep going. And with that, that brings us to the final part of the mini series to a close. Thank you to everyone who took the time to listen in. It is imperative that we can keep these conversations going so that we can put words into action and better the sector for all participants. This has been another episode of Perspectives by Women in Securities Finance, and we hope you join us again next time.